I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast, as ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And today, we have a story. It is a story of a great endurance challenge. It's about leveraging a multi-sport approach to create wonderful performance in the world's most challenging endurance event. It's a story about overcoming adversity. It's a story about integrating sport into your life, the importance of strength and conditioning, the role of sleep, how community and family can help you thrive and excel. We welcome back Tim Deere, a Purple Patch athlete and the epitome, a prime example of the time-starved executive athlete. Tim juggles his time between four kids, a wife, the Spina Nerve Center in Charleston, Virginia, of which he is the CEO, and doing some crazy, crazy endurance challenges. This is the second time that we've had Tim on the show. The first was two years ago where, as a 54-year-old, he completed the Badwater 135. Many would say the most challenging endurance trail running event in the world. Well, he's back two years later, 56 years of age, trying to go faster. More than 30 hours of running through some of the highest temperatures from below sea level all the way up to the highest point in continental North America. Ladies and gentlemen, Tim Deere is a performance athlete. He's a father, a husband, a CEO, and you might find him inspiring, maybe a little crazy, but it is a story that you just cannot help but listen to. I want you to take into our conversation today and think about your own performance journey and draw so many of the lessons because my bet is that very few of you will have any aspirations to do something quite as challenging as the Bad Water 135. But as you'll so clearly hear, the lessons are there for all of us, even if you're listening and thinking, I just wish I could get consistent in my fitness. It is a platform of health, of inspiration, of performance in work, and across your life. And so what we're going to do, because it's a pretty meaty conversation, is we are going to skip word of the week. We are not going to do a squatty update. We are not going to go through ooh, the bleeding echo you. We are going to go right in with today's meat and potatoes. I give to you, Mr. Tim Deer. All right, here we are. It is once again the Mean of Potatoes. And today we welcome back Dr. Tim Deer. Oh, my goodness me. Tim, it's been two years since we last had you on the show. And at that time, you just finished the iconic Bad Water 135 for the very first time. And here we go again. And in fact, I will say it is back due to popular demand. As soon as you finished the race, we had, we were quite frankly, inundated with folks listening, saying, hey, you've got to have this guy on the show. For round one was so <laughs> inspirational slash crazy. So here we are for round two. You are two years older, 56 years of age now, and you took on the greatest endurance challenge once again. And so 
dig in. Tim, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Matt. It's certainly a pleasure to be back. In fact, I turned 57 a few days ago, so uh, time flies, man. Uh, but it's good to be back with you again. G'day. Well, firstly, happy birthday. I didn't know that you'd uh, tipped over. You are officially a geezer. What about that? In, in the man, man. Well, I'm, still, I'm still, still kicking, though. I'll take it. But you're right. Uh, I'm aging up closer to 60. But, you know, hey, that's how glad to be here. Super. Well, for listeners, if you if you haven't listened, uh, I'm going to first send you backwards because you you got to go back. It is well worth heading back and listening to our show a couple of years ago, and we'll add it to the show notes. But Tim's that that I I don't like to overuse this word, but this is appropriate. Epic recount of what happened in really the most grueling endurance events. Um, but I think I thought what we'd do is we'd uh, kick it off today by refreshing listener about bad water. And by all accounts, this is one of the toughest tests of endurance events that there are in sport. And uh, and on episode one, when we did it a couple of years ago, I joked that the finish line runs straight through the gates of a mental institution. <laughs> so uh, I will frame that again today. But can you just give listeners maybe a couple of minutes on the event itself? Just refresh them, like the setting, the course, the, the challenge, etc. You know, Matt, I think uh, it's certainly fitting to recap it a little bit. Uh, you know, I've done the Boston Marathon many times, New York City, Ironman Hawaii, Leadville 100-mile run, and, and all those races are epic and, and very painful at, at some point, but nothing compares to the heat and brutality of the Badwater 135. And in fact, the reason I wanted to get into Badwater when I was fortunate enough to get a spot two years ago, and now again, Chris Cosman, the race director, granted me a spot with his team of judges um, is because it does push the body and the mind and the soul to the brink. And, you know, if you ever want to be in, in, in really a great deal of, of torment uh, and then overcome that with your mind and body, bad water is that test. And so it's 135 miles from the lowest point in continental America, a bad water basin, to the highest uh, mountain in, in the continental America, Mount Whitney portal. And we go up to, to uh, the portal there at Mount Whitney. So it's, uh, and, and during that, that climb, uh, you cross uh, Death Valley uh, during the heat of the day and, and during two nights, actually. So it's a, it's a great uh, event and uh, definitely one of my all-time favorites. And, you know, people that are listening for the first time, they're probably just like, what in the world? And I guess we should point out the reason it's uh, the 135 is 135 miles of running nonstop. You do have a support team, but uh, nonstop over the course of many hours, we'll get into how many hours in uh, in a few moments. And I'm going to ask you almost an impossible question, which is what are the biggest challenges that competitors face outside of it being freaking hard? Well, I think, you know, getting there healthy is one of the biggest challenges. You know, they, they choose 100 people very carefully trying to get a really good finish rate. And about 10 of those people didn't make it to the start line. Uh, you know, so I think that's one of the things, getting there healthy. Two is we have a nighttime start. So there's fast, faster, and fastest groups. And Chris Cosman put me in the fastest group, which was mostly professional runners and people like myself who probably didn't belong there. But uh, I think I proved I kind of did at the end of the day. But, you know, we start at 11 p.m. So you, you, no matter what you do, you can't really sleep that afternoon and evening. So you start off on the first night, you know, being sleep deprived. And then thirdly, you know, some of the heat you achieve, you know, coming off the ground, uh, it was 141 degrees in between two of the towns on, on our car uh, that was uh, trailing behind me, the SAG van. But, it, you know, it was, it was definitely in the high 120s or low 130s temperature wise and about 200 degrees on the asphalt. 
and you feel that through your feet. So those are some of the challenges. But the, the biggest challenge of all, though, Matt, I think is just the mental part. I think, you know, most people at some point feel like they can't do it or they're going to have to stop or they can't go forward and digging deep in your mind to find that inner uh, peace of mind that you can do it is probably one of the biggest, uh, the biggest challenge of all of those things. It's, uh, and it, it, I want to come up a level and talk about what we want to achieve in today's conversation. And for some people listening, they might not realize that, uh, that I have coached you through this both, both two years ago and this year. And uh, beyond the toughness and the challenge, which of course is incredibly interesting and inspiring, I want to get a couple of things out of this discussion today and hopefully provide some of the insights of how you so successfully have integrated sport into your life. You are, and I sort of joked about you being two years older now, but but you're getting faster with age. And, um, and we're going to dive into a little bit of our training approach, which I think has been instrumental uh, and you have really sort of buoyed so much of that, but how we've gone about this, because it's a little different than what people might accept. And then, then of course, your mindset. So with that, let's dig in. And uh, you've got a wonderful family. I want to paint the picture of, um, of your situation, because this isn't a full-time job for you. This is very much something that is done as a hobby, as you might call it. But you've got a wonderful family, four children, an absolutely huge job, a massive amount of travel, even through this last year. Why don't you just give us a, a reminder of a snapshot of your, your personal and professional life? Well, thanks, Matt. You know, I, I think uh, I've been blessed to have a, a, a wonderful family life. My wife, Missy, and my four children, uh, Morgan Taylor, Bailey, and Reed. And, and, you know, they're all getting older now and have their own lives. And, and my last one is almost through college. I get ready to go to law school. So, uh, you know, we, we're still there to support them, but uh, the hands-on work has gotten a lot easier. Uh, I'm an interventional spine physician, uh, uh, trained at the University of Virginia, and, and now work in West Virginia. And we do a lot of uh, work uh, with my team on FTA studies and, and device development and uh, things of that nature. And I travel uh, before COVID around the world teaching some of the minimally invasive spine procedures we do. But since COVID, uh, I've been doing a lot of webinars like uh, like I might be doing today on this podcast. And uh, and now we're getting back to travel. I'm going to Paris uh, in, in two weeks to actually teach uh, in Paris. And we're going to Iceland about four weeks from now. So now we're finally getting back to our international colleagues. So I, I've tried to balance sport into that because sport has been uh, a big part. It's been, you know, I always say you have to have a motto. Mine's been God, family, work. But I always tell people family includes your health. And if you're unhealthy, then you really can't be a good family person. So I, I've integrated sport as part of my commitment to being healthy, to be in here, to watch my kids get married and have children themselves. Yeah, it's, it's a a massively important part of you as a person. And, and I think one of the things that I've been most impressed with you is that automatically a lot of people would assume that if somebody is training for, let's call it the, the Hawaii Ironman, consistent Boston marathons, the, the Badwater 135, that it's a selfish endeavor. But I think that the recipe of life that you've managed to concoct in a way to create and craft over the course of, uh, of many years is actually by doing this has amplified not just your health, but how you show up with your family in your work and professional life. Would you, would you agree with that sentiment? No, absolutely. And I've been really fortunate. Usually my wife and one or two of my children show up at every race to either crew me or 
you know, hang out with me or, or, or be there to, to look at me uh, walk like a terrible uh, injured person after the race, you know? So, uh, so yeah, that's been a big part of it. And, you know, I think the other part of it is too, we've, you know, oftentimes race for more, race for charity to, to raise money for causes. And I think that also really adds a lot to it because it lets you get your friends and family involved and, and when they can donate money or get involved in fundraisers. So oftentimes I'm racing for, for a cause as well. And I think that really brings in your friends and family to to know that you're doing it for a bigger purpose than yourself. Uh, and that's always one of my main goals. Well, you know, I'm going on a tangent, but one of the things that we always do with athletes, I think is so, so important. And in fact, this absolutely extends into people that are leaders of business or people are part of business is finding purpose. And when the purpose is about something outside of just yourself, it's so much of a greater opportunity for success. But um, but we could talk about all that that all day. I, I, I want to shock listeners right now. And, uh, and I want to take people on a journey, of a short journey, but a, a journey of what it is like for me at the start of every year when I sit down with you and say, okay, what are we going to try and do? So, and every year you say, this is what I've got planned. And then I have to go about thinking about how to thread the needle on this absolutely ambitious set of race plans. So go back to uh, early springtime this year and recount your story of what have you got lined up for endurance events in 2021? So, you know, I think all of them was going to happen, but, but two, and I'll go through it with you. But, uh, you know, so my, my original goals were to do the Destin 50 mile sand run, which is 50 miles on sand in Destin, which is an ultra that uh, it's usually done, starts at high tide and it's done to, uh, help the Special Forces uh, uh, Foundation for uh, uh, veterans who have children who are going to college who have been killed in, in warfare. So it's a big, important race to me. Then we have the Boston Marathon scheduled, which, as you know, was delayed. And we'll talk about mm -hmm. that. Um, and then we get into uh, Badwater, which, uh, you know, I was so thrilled to get into Badwater. And uh, it's a very, very small group this year because of the previous year's COVID. And then the Leadville 100 is uh, six weeks after Badwater, which is uh, coming up next weekend. Uh, and then I, you know, unfortunately, then I have Ironman Hawaii, October 8th, and they moved the Boston Marathon to the same weekend. So I was trying to see if I could fly from Hawaii to Boston in time to do it. But really, you thread the needle would be very difficult to get there in time. So I don't think it's going to work out. And then I have the New York City Marathon um, a few weeks after that. I'm trying to qualify for Boston in New York City for the next year because they've extended the qualifying time. So so I think New York will be my A races at Badwater and New York City will be my A races. My B races will be Leadville and, and Kona. I was trying to throw Ironman California in there, but I have to cover uh, work uh, that week. So I don't think I'm going to be able to get to Ironman California. That's a week, uh, two weeks after after Kona, two weeks before New York. So that still could happen, but I don't think we're going to be able to get it in there, Matt, at this point. <laughs> it's a sigh of relief from me that I don't have to try and thread the needle on that one. But uh, yeah, listeners that think, you know, you've got Ironman Hawaii World Championships, which by itself often has the mantle of one of the toughest endurance events, just a B race for Tim. But uh, but there lies the coaching challenge, looking to prepare and excel in these major challenges. While And, and, and you mentioned this earlier, but maintaining health, really important to us. Be vibrant high performance during the workplace, and of course, be really present with wife and the rest of your family. And so I guess the, the question to you, Tim, how do you do it? So I think it comes down to a, time, to a couple of things, Matt. One is time management. 
you know, and so when you and I sit down and look at my plan, you know, a lot of mornings you have me swimming or biking because I can do that before work. You know, I can get up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning and get that done and then running late in the afternoon uh, after work before dinner. So some of it's time management, I think, you know, to get that done. Well, I think the other thing is, you know, prioritizing uh, your time. So, for example, today I was able to bike and run, uh, come back, have uh, a nice lunch uh, with my family by the pool and then uh, do some work for a few hours. And then we have this uh, time you and I have to have a discussion. So it all comes down to that, I think. And then the other thing I've added in the last year and a half, maybe two years, has been very valuable. I've added some sleep in there. I used to really give up a lot of sleep. And now I really sleep just, you know, I, I'm, I'm making sure I'm sleeping six hours a night or more, which is a big change for me. And I, I think that's been really helpful. So I think the only change I made in time management the last uh, few years is I sleep a little bit more, which means I, you know, I give up a little bit of uh, social media time or I give up a little television time. And, and I think that's been good. So it comes down to, uh, you know, can you get a schedule every day of your life that you can have fun, have a good time, do things at work that makes you proud? get your workout in and, and still get some rest. And, and so I, we've been able to put that into a, a pretty defined uh, schedule and it becomes a habit for people. So it sounds complicated, mm -hmm. but when we get into doing that, it becomes a habit. Yeah. It's organizational skills are, are so, so important. I guess prioritization as well. Yeah. Like you you know, stuff that is somewhat empty, although enjoyable sometimes social media, television, et cetera, has to ultimately have the discipline of taking a back seat relative to a real performance enhancer in the good sense of the world, sleep. And that becomes uh, so important. So uh, we're going to get into your training. You meant you, you, you gave away a little bit of the house there, which, uh, which will be no surprise to people, which we approach your running training with a real multi-sport lens. We are going to get into that, but we've got to get to the thumb part. We've got to talk about the race. And I'm going to hand it over to you in, in a couple of moments, but I want to frame it for the listeners. You completed the race two years ago, 54 years of age. Many of the listeners have heard your first story, which was an incredible story of, of buoyancy, pride, obviously excited, very excited, and rightly so. And going back in that time, you were one of the heaviest athletes to successfully cross the line. I think you were just over 200 pounds at that time. I, I want to point out 200 pounds of muscle. But, um, but it took you 36 hours of straight running, all sorts of adversity, and we're, we're going to get into that. You return with the added burden of a couple of years older, and most people would assume that a goal would be, because it is a common sentiment, can you match your prior effort two years older? You went a little bit faster. So I'd love you to go through the race debrief or, or, or firstly, before we go into the race debrief, give me your mindset of your ambition and your goal as it goes into this first race. Yeah. So, you know, Badwater, uh, getting in Badwater, I was, I was during COVID, like many people, I sat in my office and did telehealth and ate cookies and, uh, was off my diet a little bit and, uh, didn't run as much and I'd gained some weight and I was kind of not in my best shape of all time. And I got into bad water and my wife's like, I'm not sure you can do bad water this year. And so you and I talked and we decided May 1st was going to be our, our, our go date to really train hard from May 1st until, you know, July 15th. So that's, you know, what's that? That's 10 weeks or so uh, of, of hard training. And, and so then I really committed uh, to beating my last year's goal. And so I had 3608. That was 33rd out of 100 people. And, and you know, that was pretty good for, for a guy in his mid-50s. But I said, you know, I think I can do better. I think I can be in the top 20. I think I can get to do 33 hours. 
And so, uh, you know, that would be put me in the top 20 overall. And that that would be a great goal. And I looked at people over 50 and I thought, well, you know, if I can do 33 hours, I have a shot at being the fastest person over 50 in the race. So those are things I had set as goals, Matt, as when you and I talked, I, I wanted to try to take uh, two hours off my time and get in the top 20 instead of the top 33. And uh, they seem to be reach goals, you know, a little bit, a little bit of a reach. My secondary goal was to do as well as last time, but I was going to be quite disappointed if that's what I did. My third goal was not to die, do nothing fatal, as they say. And so that, that goal was really important to me, probably the most important goal. I, I hope that is the uh, the most important goal, but also the one that's least likely to uh, that you have to uh, overcome. So it's a it, it's more than 30 hours of continuous running. And I'm sure listeners can just imagine the training. Now, remembering that your mission is integrating sport into a really complex, and I would say, time-staffed life, give us a few elements of your training. And I guess first, I'm going to let you lead this, even though I'm obviously the coach. Give people, what are the elements, the pieces of a regular weekly training plan for you? Well, I'll start by saying I listen to some other other athletes on podcasts, and they're running 150 miles a week getting ready for Badwater. So it's a little stressful because I don't really have the time, nor do you or I think that's a good idea at my age to run that much. I, I would get injured. So the average week for me, uh, you know, I'll start with Monday morning. I'll, I'll get up Monday morning and go to the pool. We'll have a pool workout of some sort. Um, during the day, I'll work all day, and then and then I'll I'll, I'll throw in a usually a run uh, about 4.30, 5 o'clock. I'm done by 6.30. Some days hills, some days speed work, some days you know, slow and steady runs. And then Tuesday morning, I'll get up and bike usually. Uh, and then uh, I'll try, if I have between surgeries, sometimes I'll have time for a run in the middle of the day. And then we'll do another uh, short run in the afternoon. Usually it's maybe a, a five-mile run with uh, some intermittent speed work. Uh, Wednesday morning, uh, usually back in the pool. Um, and, and again, you know, I think that's, uh, you've done a great job. Some days those are speed workouts. Some days those are, you know, pull aim with strength. Uh, but you know, that's not weight bearing. So you're not putting a lot of stress on your joints. Uh, once the afternoon running again, Thursday morning pool, uh, or biking and, and, and then Friday, uh, usually running only Saturday or Sunday one, I'll usually go on a long run and long for me is two or three hours, not six or eight or 10 hours. Like some people do with ultra running. And then usually get a second workout either. And sometimes we've had these double runs that you've designed, Matt, which has been great. Two hours in the morning, maybe an hour in the afternoon, a little bit different. One's hills, one's flat, one's easy, one's hard. And then the Sunday morning, I'll come back before church and do the same thing, uh, maybe a, a, an hour and a half long run. So we maybe have four days where we stack runs together. And then Monday, we made a swim and do some strength work only. And one thing I, I, I left out there is I, three days a week, I've been doing 30 or 40 minutes of strength with mostly body weight planking, uh, bands, really nothing, no, no heavy weights. And, and uh, that's something new we integrated since the last Badwater. And I think that's going to be uh, a critical part of the reason we did so well in, in, in uh, Death Valley this year was that adding that, that strength work. But my average running per week is probably 60, 70 miles at most. Uh, I, and that's about where I, I fall. And I think that's been uh, unusual for an ultra runner, but it's been good for me. Yeah, I, and I'm going to sort of come over the top as the coach there because, you know, to, to sort of distill that into a basis, that the absolute pillars, the first thing, it's funny, when we were preparing for this discussion, I was thinking, how many miles does he run in a week? And it's neither of us sort of knew. We had to, like, go back and say, it's roughly this because that's not a barometer of our success, and I think that's point number one. Point number two, to build ourselves around, we try and leverage multi-sport to develop – 
cardiovascular conditioning, muscular endurance without it being corrosive on the joints. And then the third component, which I want to come back and, and double down on it for you, strength, because this has been new for you. Last time we didn't integrate strength too much, despite it always being a big part of the purple patch training. This time you were incredibly consistent. And I don't want to give away the, uh, the, the sort of end game here of the race, but I think you really felt that on the race itself. Yeah? You said you felt really stable, really strong, even as you were sort of getting into the most fatiguing parts of the race. Would you would we say that's accurate? Oh, yeah. I think the last 45 miles of the race was where we regrouped. Uh, the strength training came in as we passed people playing pretty old-fashioned country music on our speaker system. Uh, I could feel the strength training uh, really helping me both with uh, the core itself, with abdominal strength, but also going up uh, Mount Whitney. Uh, the strength training was was just uh, really evident to me and, and uh, made, made that a great, pleasant experience as opposed to a crying and moaning experience it was uh, two years earlier. And, uh, and I will say, because, you know, your longest run, I, I think by my memory, I didn't go back and look, but give or take, your longest standalone run was give or take about four hours, I think. I think it was accurate. But you mentioned something there that I want to come back to again, which will help a lot of ambitious ultra runners that are maybe thinking, goodness me, I have to go and do these six, seven, eight hours. We, um, we did a lot of uh, what I call cluster running maybe a run on Friday, a morning run on Saturday, afternoon run, another run on Sunday to try and over the course of 48 hours or so accumulate a lot of the resilience. And that's really good for a time star thing. It's probably probably really helpful for, for a joint and tissue side of, uh, side of components as well, don't you think? I think it's good for three things. One is I think it's really good for your joints. You know, sometimes I have people that are really out of shape say, don't your knees hurt? And I look at them and they've had two knee replacements, you know. And so I think being in shape uh, is actually better for your knees rather. But I do think that it helps you to break it up. Two is it's good for friendships. You know, I have people that can go out and run with me for an hour or two. But they can't go out and run for four or five. So I have somebody to run with and talk to, which is really good for the mind and, and my training. And I think it's easier to do that when you break those runs up into four runs instead of one eight hour run, which no one wants to join you on. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think the other thing that's really good about is time because I can go run in the morning, uh, come back, see my, do something with one of my family members, you know, go see my, you know, visit relatives or whatever, and then, and then go run again in the afternoon and then go to a movie that evening. So you, you really have a, you can break it up where you can actually still have a, a pretty good life. And, you know, when I train for triathlon, you know, as you know, that six hours on the bike on Saturday morning kind of ruins your day, if you will. So breaking things up like this really is good for the social life. And I think uh, some of that integration of uh, having a life rather than being uh, married to a race. The uh, I, I want to finally, before we get into the race itself, I want to come back to the arriving healthy component. Because it, when I first started coaching you a couple of years ago, I wasn't sure. It was almost a crazy experiment for me because I, I was thrown into this new environment in many ways. Uh, listeners heard the the ambitious race schedule. So, okay, I really believe in the multi-sport approach to running, but can I really, quote, keep this guy healthy for this amount of time? Something that, that just staggered me, I didn't realize this, that of the 100 people that were invited, 10% couldn't start is that is that did you say that that about 10, 10 people couldn't start because of injury yeah the way the bad water works you know thousands of people apply you have to do three 100 mile runs within a certain amount of time and you have to have certain time 
finish in the, one of those races and there's certain qualifiers. And then you apply and there's four judges, they score your application and they try to pick the best hundred people they can. And the reason they pick those hundred people, they want you to finish. They don't want mm -hmm. you to be in. So of those hundred people, there's a waiting list and, and, you know, people try for years to get in bad water sometimes and don't get in. So if you get in, I, I urge you to go. It's, it's worth it. It's a great race. And then uh, with about a month left to go, they send out one more email and they say, are you going to make it? Because if you can't, they want to give any alternate at least a month to, you know, hopefully they're training already, but at least a month to prepare. And, and so, uh, all hundred people said, yes, I'll be there. Uh, you know, David Goggins was signed up to be there and didn't make it. Uh, so 10 people of those hundred didn't show up on, on the, on the start line at day of race. Now, was that injury or was that because it was, we had warnings. It was gonna be the hottest bad water ever. And it's been a really hot year in death Valley. And there were a lot of emails about the heat and it scared some people. I think that and that may be another reason a few people dropped out. So I think that was one of the first times that you had that I have a dropout rate. But again, I think the other reason is, and I saw some runners, uh, I was in a couple of groups on Strava and some runners got injured. Their Achilles got injured, their knee, they had stress fractures and they couldn't show up for the start line because they had injuries and they were overuse injuries. And I think that's because again, when you run 150 miles in a week, um, you know, if you're a 25 year old athlete or if you're a 55 year old athlete, you still may get some overuse injuries. So I do think that that's probably not the best strategy for most people. All right. Well, we've got the picture painted. It's, uh, it's time for me to sit in my recliner and fasten my seatbelt because I want to, you to take us through the quote long day. Uh, mission two years older, trying to go faster than the 36 hours from last time. Let's uh, nice and clean, Tim, nice and succinct. But I'd love you to go through and paint a little bit of a snapshot of the setup, the weigh in. Last time you weighed just over 200 pounds you're starting this time 11 p.m and let's go stage by stage and uh and take you through the journey yeah okay very good well i'll go through each phase and then i'll give you a chance to ask me a question after each of that so before the race uh, i had a great crew uh, my crew was the same as last year with one exception i had uh, keith bettiger uh, Jason Ofinger, Ian Custer, and my son uh, got a job in Georgia and couldn't join me. So I had a, a college runner, Aubrey Custer, join me, uh, uh, who helped pace me, and she was amazing. And so we 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 all got ready. We got the van ready, and, the, and we stopped at the Walmart in Nevada on the way there and got supplies, which is you got to go to Walmart. It's a critical part of Badwater. We get to uh, the pre-race. We get actually involved uh, with getting everything ready, and the crew was getting that ready, and I'm getting mentally ready knowing that I'm in the last group. And so you start driving from where the, there's only a few hotels, the Oasis Hotel and, and out there in Furnace Creek, you start driving towards Badwater Basin and you see the first two groups coming towards you with headlights on because it's a nighttime start, 8.30 or 8 o'clock, 9.30 and 11. And so again, and, and Chris Kosman calls it fast, faster and fastest. And, and I was in that last group. And so you're driving, you see these people and the wind was blowing so hard that you were seeing people like losing their headlights and, it was a big headwind. It was about 30 mile an hour headwind starting out the race. And it was about 112 degrees to 115 degrees at 1030 at night. So temperature dropped some. So that was a little bit of a relief. It, it dropped, but that wind actually felt pretty warm. So we're driving out to the basin and we get out and we start taking pictures. And there's some really uh, well-established professional runners there in my group. And they're talking to each other about their goals. And I'm listening to those folks, uh, some from Ukraine, some from Russia. Um, Sally McRae, the yellow runner was there with me. She ended up winning the women's division. And so uh, at some point they actually have a, a gentleman from Mexico 
who had been a previous winner, play the trumpet, play the national anthem of the United States. And uh, that was kind of touching, you know, and then and then the, the race starts and I was determined to come out of there last. I, I want to come out in last place. And so I told all my friends, I'm coming out last. So um, Chris Cosmer and I run up the back. And, and, and so a couple of runners were trying to get behind me. I wouldn't let anybody behind me. And so you have a little video we have where I'm the last runner out because I'd, I I literally wanted to come out in last place. So if I finish last, no one passed me, but hopefully I do better. And that was the beginning of the race. And and you have your headlight on. Uh, I'm playing a little country music on my on my um, phone and uh, listening to a little little country music going through there. And, and and now it's 19 miles to the first place where your crew can you know really kind of give you new new things. And that's that's Furnace Creek. That's the first stopping point to check in. And on the way there, you can you have a sag van that can give you fluids and things of that nature. So that's that's the start and that's the beginning. It's uphill for 19 miles from Badwater Basin to Furnace Creek. So it's rolling hills uphill with a headwind and, you know, being big, you know, I weighed in the first time I was over 200 pounds and one of the guys weighing me in says he wasn't sure anyone had ever finished before that as heavy as I was, I'm not sure that was true, but this year when I showed up, he remembered me and he said to me, are you going to start a Clydesdale division here? And I said, I just may. And uh, so this year there was another guy that was about my size there, which was kind of good to see because usually most of the folks there are, pretty small, you know, 140, 150 pound uh, men and 130 pound women. So it was kind of good to see another bigger runner. But uh, so that was kind of the, the the lead up, the start. And the first 19 miles, I came in there at a, at a pace that was actually a little faster than my 2019 pace. I was uh, maybe a 30 seconds faster, but I was careful not to go out too fast, Matt, because one of the great mistakes of, of Badwater is because it is a little cooler at night people go out way too fast. So that that's the beginning. Also, I drink no caffeine in that first 20 miles because you want to save the caffeine for later when you really need it. You want your body to respond to it. And I, I stuck with, you and I had a plan on nutrition. We stuck with, with simple sugars in those first 35 miles uh, using some of those those um, uh, honey stinger waffles, you know, then, and that there's easy to digest and then tailwind and water rotating. So that was the, that was the first 19 miles. The heat was about 110 degrees not terrible. Didn't really feel the heat. I, I really prepared well for the heat in the sauna at the YMCA. Um, you know, so I, I really felt great in the heat. I, I really felt like I was, if anything, it was normal temperature. So that's the first uh, 19 miles. And, and uh, I think it's a good time uh, to reveal a couple of little strategic points that we had. So you mentioned there one that might be surprising. We started with more simple sugars and a lot of people think, oh, go to sugar later. But uh, we knew that the savories and the components like that would probably be better later. And you're excited and calm, so easily absorbable. We did a lot of heat adaptation before, a lot of uh, sauna protocols and components like that. But I want to talk about uh, two quick things at, at this stage. We're 19 miles into the race right now. Number one, your shoe change strategy. And, uh, and the reason for that is last time, a couple of years ago, you had a couple of real problems with effectively losing the soles of your feet because it was so hot a little bit later. So I want to talk about the strategy of how many shoe changes that you are going to have. And then the one other pressure that you had here by going by getting drawn into the quote, the quote, fastest uh, wave, you had a pretty challenging deadline that you had to cross at the 50 mile marker. Yeah. So a couple of things. Uh, yeah, you bring up a lot of great points. So one is heat training. We only did about two weeks of heat training um, because, you know, heat training can actually hurt your performance. So I, 
I heat trained the last 14 days before the race. Some people heat train for three months. It, it really is probably, as you and I have talked about, probably not a great idea. My heat training consisted of running in Florida with a bunch of uh, flannel and fleece and, and, and three in the afternoon on my, and near my family vacation home. And then getting in the sauna for about an hour or five days a week at the YMCA after I swam and doing push-ups and sit-ups in the sauna at about 180 degrees. So I got to where an hour felt pretty normal in there. So that was my heat training. Um, in regard to, you know, basically, um, looking at the simple sugars, uh, I think that was a good strategy. What, what was it? What was the other thing you brought up? You brought up another shoe important change. Shoe, shoe, oh, shoe change. change. You know, so if you listen to the, our, our, our podcast two years ago, Matt, I was talking about how cocky I was getting at mile 100, how great I was feeling. And then someone shot me with a shotgun at the bottom of my foot. Cause I looked down and my foot sloughed off basically. And my crew had to drain blood and, and we had to put uh, some some tape on there. Uh, some and, and my whole foot was basically almost non-usable. This year, you and I had a great discussion. We said, "Why not change shoes early and often?" Because it's really two things. It's the um, you know the the uh, rubbing the, the of the of the sock. You know the uh, and it's the heat later on. So at mile nineteen, uh, I was running in Hoka Mach fours. We changed uh, socks and shoes over to on clouds changed into some new socks and, and used uh, some, some great um, product for the feet to keep the feet from being blistered. And that, that strategy turns out later to be really critical to how well I did. So I, I think that that's a great point. And I'm going to, you know, I think in the future, I'm going to do the same because it's really, if, you have, if you're starting to get a hot spot, you may not feel it until it's too late. And so here we're changing socks and shoes. So if there's a hot spot forming and you change all that, you may have a different thing. The other thing I'll say is my wife talked me into going to, see a pedicurist uh, before the race. And uh, she worked on my toenails and my toenails was like pretty gross. I just have to tell you after all this running and she made them look really nice, and, but they were smooth and then grabbed my sock. And so I think mm -hmm. the pedicure, two pedicures before this race, never had one in my life before. Uh, those were probably another critical factor that helped with this foot care was getting the pedicures. It's amazing. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense, of course. So uh, I never took you for a spa, man, but there you go. All right. So we're 19 miles in. Carry on. The, the stage is yours. So we get to mile 19 and it flattens out now. You've climbed from Badwater Basin up to Furnace Creek and now it starts to, to flatten out. And you're going to go now until mile 42, which is Stovepipe Wells, which is a, a you know where the hottest temperature of all time was recorded back in 1908. Although this past year, we got pretty close to it. It was 134 was the hottest temperature, got to 132 this year. So we're, we're getting there. Uh, and so, but we're going to be going now through the night to sunrise. And it's going to be about sunrise when you get there. And I know at mile 50, you get the same cutoff whether you start at eight o'clock or 11 o'clock. So I have three hours less to get to the first cutoff and someone starting at eight o'clock, which means if you cramp or you get nauseated or you get sick or you had to stop and sit down for a while, you're going to have a real issue because you may miss that cutoff. And, you know, so at mile 19, I had not sat down yet uh, just to change my socks and shoes. It took me about two minutes. Actually, I think it took three or four minutes. And I told my crew, we got to get faster the next time. We're trying to, it's like a pit crew, you know, which is kind of, kind of crazy when you think you have 48 hours to finish your race that, that you're being that, you know, exact on time, but you really don't want to waste time setting it, at, you know, getting things done. So now the next 42 miles, I feel wonderful. I'm, I'm feeling great. I'm running some of those miles at 9.30 pace, you know, nine-minute pace. And, and, and I say, that's too fast. So I have slowed myself down to 10. I'm monitoring my heart rate the whole time. My heart rate never got above 130 in those first 42 miles, which is pretty good for me. You know, I was pretty pleased with that. And so it, it, the night's there. And then you start seeing the sun come up over the mountains in Death Valley. 
And it is the most beautiful thing. And the other thing I saw a lot of was shooting stars at, before sunrise. And, you know, you don't see those in a town, right? Because there's too much light. Yeah. There were shooting stars everywhere. And then you see the moon over here and the sun over here at the same time. So I, I just really had peace of mind from mile 30 to mile 42. It was just really tranquil for me. And, and, and again, I was so at, at, at ease and felt so good. Had no pain anywhere in my body. Didn't really feel any type of, you know, spasm or cramps or anything. So I get to mile 42 to check in number two. It's getting now it's sun has come up and I'm going to get to bring a pacer on board now at mile 42. And I check in at the check-in station. And, um, and, and that's where actually I shifted over then to my next strategy of nutrition over to fatty uh, foods. I use that almond butter type fat nutrition source. So, uh, and I'll change shoes again at mile 42 and socks. Now my feet felt totally normal. I think it's important for people that have any problem with blisters or other things to re remember my feet felt great, but I was changing anyway, because I'm getting those micro abrasions that I want to avoid. And so we do that again, we make a, a change of both socks and shoes. Super. And you know, you're, you're heading this, I guess, I can just imagine the beauty, and it's funny, I've just been on a rafting trip where I had exactly the same experience, sitting up and looking at the Milky Way and shooting stars, and it's like, wow, there's no light pollution here. So, so I can just imagine what that brings you. I guess behind that is the looming realization that here comes the heat, yeah? So, uh, so, so the day comes up. So, so carry on. Well, I think God's kind of humbling you a little bit. You look how great nature is. And you say to yourself, well, I'm not that great myself. Nature's pretty cool. So, yeah, so I get to 42, and Ian comes through my first pacer, and my crew's uh, got everything ready for me. And I'm like, man, I'm crushing this thing. I'm, I'm doing great. Can't hurt me. You know, I'm going to kill this. And so then about mile 45, uh, the, my check-in point's mile 50. That's where you have to be at a certain time. I get to mile 50, and I'm, I'm, I'm still, even though I started three hours later, I'm still about an hour and a half, two hours ahead of the check, of the cutoff time. So I'm pretty happy with that. And so we, we started an 18-mile climb now called, called Town Pass. And, and so it is a climb for 18 miles that just keeps going and going and going. And I was feeling wonderful. And then my first obstacle hit me. Uh, the rhomboid muscle is a muscle just just on the inside of your shoulder blade near your spine. And, you know, I've done all kinds of Ironman triathlon. I've done all kinds of marathons. I've done all kinds of ultra runs. I don't think I've ever had pain in my rhomboid in my career for any reason. But about 55, I felt like someone took a large knife and stabbed me in my rhomboid on my right side of my back. And I had the worst pain. I think I've ever had. And it, and it was right in my rhomboid muscle, which is really bizarre. And every time I raised my right arm, I went into spasm in my right shoulder and arm. So now I'm about 55. I'm climbing. I've got another 10, no, 12 miles to climb and I can't move my right arm. I have to keep it to my side. And so I thought, oh, oh this is my first real challenge. So uh, fortunately, we had some sort of bio cream spray that kind of it works on your muscle. And uh, my friend, Jason Overger had brought a, 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 a still looking massage ball thing that he kept in ice. And I thought that looks silly. And when he brought it, my friend Keith said, that's silly. That thing probably saved me because when I took the break every mile and a half for water, he would take that thing and rub it as hard as he could on my rhomboid. And so I, I get to mile, I guess, 70 now. And I'm at the, no, not 70, I think 60 or so. And I'm at the top of that climb. And now it suddenly goes away. It just totally just leaves me. 
And Aubrey Custer, who's 18 year old, uh, getting ready to start a freshman career at Western University on, on the track and field team, becomes is my pacer at this point. And we go downhill. You go up for 18 miles and down for six. And we go down that six miles, and I haven't felt that good in a long time. Again, I had to really throttle myself. I, I could have gone faster. We were going uh, probably about 8:30 pace down that hill. Uh, and this is a total downhill drop, maybe a 10% grade at times. It goes down for six miles straight into the into the, the valley where the heat really is. So now we're going to be getting the real heat. So, but but for some reason, this terrible spasm came and this terrible spasm left. And so it, it's just interesting. It's uh, sitting in the adversity and problem solving, I guess. But uh, take us to the heat because this is the in many ways, you know, one of the more famous parts of the course. And is this the part of the course where you're going through effectively a dry uh, lake bed sort of thing? Yeah. So you, what you do, you're coming down now off Towns Pass and you've got Panamint Springs up on this hill. And in between the, the Towns Pass and, and Panamint Springs, you see the desert. And if you've ever watched some movies where they actually have fighter jets and, and they're going practicing through the desert, that's the part of the desert they go through. In fact, they went over us again this year, which is great. Uh, the, you know, I have a son-in-law who's a, a Army uh, Blackhawk pilot. So it's certainly, uh, uh, I respect those people and they're flying over you and it's so inspiring, you know, but it's inspiring, but you're pretty miserable. So what you're doing, you're going, when you get in that valley, you know, the, the recorded temperature in Panama Springs and, and other places is, is what they look at. That valley, that temperature is not recorded, but it's, uh, again, our car, our, our, our side bands had 141. Um, you know, certainly it was, it was above 130 there and there's no cover and it's direct sunlight. And on the asphalt, the asphalt is so hot, you feel it in your feet and you feel it up your legs and you feel it actually radiating up your legs. So you're spraying your legs off with water because you really, some people wear those white pants, but I just can't bring myself to put long sleeve pants or long sleeves on there. So, you know, and you really keep yourself wet. But what happens is you start to feel the burning in your feet. So you have to stop at some point there and change socks again during the middle of that desert. But the thing that really got me there was, and, and this goes back to the importance of sauna training and training your mind. I never felt hot. My skin felt hot, but I never, my pacers were hot. My crew was hot, but I never really felt hot. I felt totally comfortable other than my skin being a little hot in my legs where I could feel the heat through my shoes. Um, and there used to be an old fable that your shoes would melt there. Your shoes don't really melt. The newer shoes, and it's probably unfortunate because what they do do, they do transfer heat up to your foot. So you'd almost be better off if they would melt because then you know to change your shoes. But we changed shoes twice going through there. It's about an eight-mile area. And I think that was really important because I think last time the bottom of my feet got burned going through that area. So we changed our shoes twice. And it took about one minute each time. It was very quick. But it, it does keep some of that heat transfer down there. Yeah, I mean, you, I, I think of that that image of the the geckos or the lizards that lift up two of their feet and then put them back down in many ways. It's like giving the shoe a chance to breathe, put on a fresh shoe that isn't heat. They start radiating heat up and you flip it off. It's, it's logical, you know, as you would, uh, you would go about it. So I, so I guess bring it home for us. The, uh, you know, that you, you mentioned as the race overview, you are finishing at the top of the mountain. So, so bring it home for us, those, those last miles. So we got a ways to go still, but I'll, I'll be pretty brief with it. We get to Panama Springs, which is, up on a hill. And um, my friends ordered a pizza, which uh, I'd used a pizza at mile 110 before. 
I ate some pizza there and I was feeling great. And then you go downhill for about eight miles to a place called Darwin. That's mile 90. And at Darwin, I took off my shoes and I had about 15 blisters on my right foot. So they just came and I think it probably was a result of the desert crossing, even though we changed shoes. I think that was a result. So we brought some needles and some syringes and we sucked all the fluid out of all the blisters. Um, and because that, that really was helpful and then reapplied our socks and shoes. And then I'm probably in about 40th place right there because I, you know, I, I'd really had to str I'd struggle going uphill again. There's a big climb called Father Crowley Pass and I'd had the rhomboid pain again. And I really had, had struggled with that pain going uphill. And all of a sudden at mile 90, I felt pretty normal. And, um, so my, my friend Ian starts to pace me. We start playing, um, uh, some old uh, Johnny Cash, some old Merle Haggard, uh, pretty loudly. In fact, loudly enough, if you didn't like country music, it'd probably be annoying if we passed you. But we started passing people, Matt. We, we felt so good. I think the strength training really came into play here. And, you know, I think only about 20% of runners actually run the last 35 miles, 45 miles. Most people end up power walking because they're, they're in bad shape. We ended up running from mile 90 to 122. We ran the whole way. We just felt, I felt phenomenal that whole time. Uh, I started using caffeine now. I was using what I call runner's crack. And what runner's crack is, is Coca-Cola with uh, goose with caffeine. And I started doing that at mile 90 and, and I got this energy level and it gets dark again. And now you're going through the salt beds uh, about mile 110. There's salt beds from 110 to 122 as you go into um, the, the, the last part of the race uh, uh, over to Lone Pine. And at that point, we start just everyone we see is power walking and we're passing people. So now I've gotten myself up into about 14th place uh, as we get to mile 122. And that's the last check-in before you head up Mount Whitney. It's, uh, I mean, th this is, this is where I think listeners start to realize the mental game because each one of those sections is more than a standalone, very challenging endurance event that we've gone you know, that we've gone through and, and not just an endurance event, endurance event with amazing conditions and a startling success to get you through the late bed, late bed is only 15 blisters. And, uh, you know, two years ago, the bottom of your feet fell off. So that was tremendous. Now you have, and how many hours would, would the last climb take you? You know, let, let's call it an overall climb. How many hours of, of running uphill? When you leave the, the hotel in Lone Pine, you have about 13 miles to go to Mount Whitney Portal. And it, it's a steep, steep climb. <clears throat> in fact, when you come down to your car, you have to be very careful that your brakes don't go out. It's a very steep climb. And you're, you're going switchbacks up and back. And it's some of those iconic things you see when you go on the Badwater website. It took me about four hours in, 19, in 2019. It took me just a little over two this time. I, I actually power hiked that thing uh, with, with great uh, um, enthusiasm. Uh, my core was so much stronger than it was before that, you know, you're actually pitched forward as you go up that hill. I, I never had any abdominal cramping. I never had any pain in my side. I never had anything going on. So I was able to, uh, I went into 11th place up that hill, uh, almost got to 10th. I had a former champion right ahead of me. I, I was trying my best to catch him. I could see him in the far off distance, but, uh, couldn't quite make that happen. But, uh, I knew I was in first place and people over 50 in the masters. So I, I was pretty happy with that. And I just wanted to hold that on. Interestingly though, you remain paranoid the whole time. You're looking behind yourself with <laughs> someone else coming, you know, knowing that probably no one is because it's such a hard, steep hill, but a mountain, I should say, but, uh, we get, we get to the very top and then the last, you know, quarter mile, you're in the 
Whitney Portal area there and your whole team can join you. You know, you cross the finish line together because the crew is a critical aspect of this race. And without a, a great crew, and my crew was, I think, as good as anyone's crew could ever be, uh, you would never get through the race because they they really keep you keep you going, keep chart. Jason and Keith were keeping track of every salt tablet I took, every tailwind I took, how much volume I was taking in. So all those things are really critical, you know. And, and again, I think as we cross the finish line, looking back down over where you came from, you look across the valley, uh, you realize the awe and beauty of nature and really just uh, how how blessed we are to be able to do any of these events, right? So that was pretty cool to look back over that uh, and then celebrate with my friends and uh, get the, the the famous belt buckle from uh, Chris Kosman uh, for the Badwater finish. It's tremendous. And, and let's do the quick stats. So 11th overall, first master's finisher or first finisher of uh, 50 years of age and, and above. Time? 32 hours and three minutes, uh, over four hours faster than I was uh, two years earlier. Well, I, I, I think I, I've said it to you already privately, but I will say this in the cleanest way that I can. Fuck me, Tim. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and the, the, the other difference was four years earlier, two years earlier, you know, my crew threw me in the car and I went to, they helped me in the bed and I was on crutches for two weeks and I was in bad shape. This time I felt phenomenal. Went to Los Angeles for dinner that night, flew to Miami for a meeting the next day. So I, I think uh, it goes back to show that, you know, I think uh, if you have a good plan uh, and you execute the plan the way it's designed and you go in with the right mental attitude. I'll say one last thing, Matt, about that. The last two weeks before the race, my friends and family said, no one ever seen me this focused on an on a, on a ultra run. And, and I think it was a focus of, of really being committed to the plan I had uh, that we had designed committed to the diet. I mean, I was, I was getting leaner, committed to sleeping. I mean, it was just an overall commitment, you know, and, and I think the last thing was that goal setting we did. I wanted to break 33 hours, you know, it sounded almost impossible you know, from 36. I wanted to be in the top 20. I got to 11th, you know, I wanted to win the, be the fastest person over 50. All those things sounded like reach goals, but I, in my mind, I didn't think they were reach goals. I thought they were very doable goals, but only if I committed myself and was willing to do more than people are willing to do. Well, it's great. And, and, and I want to finish with a little bit of that stuff around uh, a, a more global perspective. And um, because, I, you know, it, it, so many, th this type of event is understandably out of people's cognitive understanding. It's like, I, I could never do that. But people also say, I, I couldn't do much of anything around this sort of sphere of stuff. And and not many listeners are going to turn around and say, I'm going to go and do bad water, of course. But many people, whether it's a half marathon, whether it's a 10K, whether it's, it's anything, they, they they start with, I couldn't do it, either because of time or family or, or look, let's face it, fear of failure. And so what do you say to those people? Well, I think if you think you can't do it, you can't do it. Uh, that's uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think what you have to do is surround yourself with positive people uh, and 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 really determine what you can stretch your limits to and what you, why you want to do it. Do you want to do it for yourself? Uh, do you want to do it to inspire others? Do you want to do it to raise money for a cause? Why do you want to do it? You know, you have to ask yourself, can I do it? And the answer is, has to be yes. If the answer is mad, if the answer is not yes, then don't even try to do it because you've already failed. You have to get in your mind a goal. You have to be goal setting. 
And then, you know, I really think having a coach to help you has been critical. You know, for me, I, I think, you know, working with you has been critical because you may have the goal to do it, the desire to do it. You may believe you can do it, but you may have no clue how to do it. You know, that's the other thing that's really important. If you have no clue how to do it, I, I, people all the time, I had someone recently that just missed the cutoff at, at their first half Ironman by three minutes. That person would go and, and run and go to the pool and get on their bike with no plan. And mm -hmm. so when I heard that he missed it, he was uh, out in California. He missed the he missed the cut about two minutes and 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 didn't wasn't an official finisher. I wasn't surprised, but it wasn't because he couldn't do it. It was because he, his training was ineffective. He overtrained without any goals or guidance. So I, I do think that that you can do that half marathon, you can do that five k, you can do that you know whatever that goal may be. But then the the other thing about that is engage your family members and your friends to encourage you say, Hey, I want to do this. And you know, then the last thing you can do, which I'm not sure you want to do, throw down on social media and announce you're doing it. Then you kind of almost have to do it. And uh, I think that helps you because your friends will really, Hey, you know, Matt, you're going to do this 50 K in Oregon. Great job. Can't wait to see how you do. So once you announce to the world, you're actually doing that event. Uh, now you're, now you're really seat buckled in for the, uh, for the ride, you know, that that that's for sure nothing like a little bit of uh, accountability in there which uh, by the way by putting it out there as well you'll be amazed i'll add one thing how supportive people will be and if you take it on of putting it out there asking for help and asking for supportive friends most people are we, we are inspired by each other and uh and most people want to help and, and want to see you succeed and i think it's a it's a it's a great challenge and i and i would add because i, I work with a lot of folk that are trying to get into consistent exercise it doesn't always have to be a race it, it can be a quest uh, I've, I'm working with a guy right now who has finally consistently got into exercise into his 40s and and is following a structured progressive training program and his quest is to do a 15 mile hike now 15 mile hike for Tim that that's the last part of his bad water but it's a seismic life event for him. After he's done that, and he will do that, what's next? And maybe it's going to be something more structured, maybe a race or a different quest. Maybe it's a hiking holiday. Who knows? But I think that's that's an all part of it that it can really fill and amplify life. I, I do want to ask you one last piece of advice as well, because I've I've mentioned your age, just a number, of course. But um, but we have a lot of people that that start to, particularly as you move towards you know 45, 46, and then over 50, a big marker for many people nowadays. What, what's your biggest piece of advice for folks that are facing the age number and wonder if they can still truly chase their performance? Well, I think there's a couple of things. You know, uh, as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little faster in some things and a little slower in some, but overall, I've, I've, my performance has improved. I think it comes down to a couple of things. One is don't listen to people who say you can't do it. Uh, sometimes when you're 50, people say, oh, you're going to run a marathon. You're 50. Oh, my gosh, you're going to you're going to have trouble. That's not true. I mean, if you're prepared, you're going to be fine. Two is I think, you know, there's a lot of other people in your age group out there in your community, wherever you live. I live in a small town in West Virginia, whether you live there or San Francisco or L.A., Find a group of people that are like-minded. I run with the same people and bike with the same people and swim with the same people who have the same mindset I do. And whenever I'm having a rough day, they're having a good day. And we really inspire each other. And then lastly, I think multi-sport. If you want to be a runner, add some swimming, add some biking. If you want to be a biker, add some swimming, add some running. I think, I think the multi-sport life really is more healthy than doing one sport all the time because you're, you're going to be less prone to 
um, repetitive motion injuries. You know, as a physician, I treat a lot of people that have had injuries that, that come from the over, over, really overuse of one area of their, of their life. So I think a multi-sport life is very healthy. Keep your weight good. Don't smoke. Uh, get the vaccine. Uh, those are all other important things because if you're not healthy, you won't do very well. So those are other Huge things thing. I would add to that. Well, Tim, what a lovely way to finish. And I got to say, I'm I'm uh, incredibly proud to help you. I know I'm just one small cog in in the big machine, and uh, and I want to highlight again your support crew and um, how you bring people along for the ride. It's it's been tremendous fun. Who knows where we're going next, but I do know that next week we're going to Leadville. So <laughs> another 100 mile running race coming. But um, but congratulations again. I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show. I'm, I'm sure with the ambition that you carry, it's not going to be your last time on the show. And and I really hope and I believe it has been a, an inspiration for uh, for people to hear your story. So, so thank you very much and best of luck for the rest of this season. I hope it goes really well. Well, thanks, Matt. Yeah, we're leaving her in Leadville in three days. My wife is going to be my main crew person there. And uh, my friend Kelly and uh, my friend Keith are going to be pacing me a bit there. And uh, we're going to hit a little altitude. And uh, I think it's going to be a great event. Uh, so the, the predicting the lows in the in the uh, upper 30s of windchill down below 30. So uh, it's the opposite of bad water. So we'll see, uh, see how we do in the cold extremes. But uh, thanks for having me. It's certainly a real honor to be here with you. And uh, to all of our friends around the world, listen to the Purple Patch podcast. Uh, thank you for spending some time with myself and Matt. Well, guys, <laughs> scary, a little crazy, a lot of fun. What a story. I just think that Tim is such an inspiring guy, an accessible guy to tell this story. What he left out in that story was some of the hallucinations, but he assured me that on that last climb as he was coming up the mountain, he saw all sorts of animals, but luckily they were friendly. Little monkeys and gorillas and calves and cows and dogs. None of them there, but just what fatigue does in these types of things. Do you remember what I said? The finished gates, surely they are the entrance to a mental institution. What a lot of fun. I hope that you enjoyed today's show. Next week, we'll be back with all of the components. But Tim, thank you so much. And guys, if you're inspired by today's show, let's look forward. A big, hairy, audacious goal. I encourage you to take it on because no matter what your level is, meet yourself where you're at, choose something ambitious, and go and get cracking. All right, we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. And if you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if we share with your friends and really go the extra mile. Head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform to follow, rate, and review the show. Your support and reviews go a long way to increasing our visibility and, of course, the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive, just like me and you. Don't forget... You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Links to the episode resources and all of our programs can be found at purplepatchfitness.com. Thanks much for listening. Take care.